This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business. Hey, my name is Sarah Davis, and I'm the founder of Fashion File. And one thing that I think is really exciting right now about fashion technology is the way that it's changing the game in e-commerce. From what people are doing with, you know, StockX is doing with sneakers or musical instruments at Reverb or sports equipment at Sideline Swap. They're taking something we've done for hundreds of years with resale and adding technology and scale, making it really interesting. From New York City, you're listening to Fashion Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the fashion industry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Fashion Is Your Business. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Rako, and I am staring right at the face I've known for years, Mr. Pavan Ball. Pavan, we are in, what is this now? Is this our, is this our sixth year of yeah, Fashion yeah, Is Your Business? Yeah, we are officially in our sixth year now, Mark. In our sixth year, coming up close soon enough at 400 episodes, not too long from now. Can't believe it. Good to see you. How are you? Yeah, that is wild. I'm doing well, man. Thank you. Good. What's happening? Good. Yeah, good. I'm just amazed that you're not completely tired of me yet. Although, maybe you are. I don't know. Never, but... Mark. Never. <laughs> What's to be has, tired of? It hasn't happened once in six years. Why today? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I still remember something you said to me a, a couple of years ago, which was, you know, we started this out, you know, I was a little bit more of the everyman comic relief, didn't know anything about fashion, fashion tech. Now I know a little bit more just from the, having so many conversations and you're like, dude, you know, too much. It's getting too serious. Got to lighten up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you have to, you have to come back from the area of uh, zero experience. I know. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know if there's a way back except for kicking you off the show, Mark. Uh, you know, Hey, wh- whatever you got to do, but not today because we've got a great guest and I'm not going anywhere. So uh, we're so happy to welcome Sarah Davis to the show. Sarah, I'm sorry you got stuck with a preamble from Pubbin and I that was just so ridiculous as that. But uh, but in any event, we're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I love being part, just sitting on the side like a fly, listening to your conversation. I love it. <laughs> so Sarah, uh, allow me to lead off with this question. You have been around Fashion File for not five years, not 10 years, not 20 years, but now 22 years, right? So long. It's so long. I mean, when I tell people the story, the crazy thing is, it sounds, I mean, look at me. It's a, it, you can't believe it, can you? No, it's <laughs> Did I start crazy. before I was born? No. But um, when I started selling on eBay, um, there were no digital cameras. I had a 35 millimeter camera that I was, I was taking the film and developing it at CVS onto a floppy disk. My kids don't even know what a floppy disk is. Yep. There was no PayPal. So you would buy something for me on eBay and you would mail me a check and I wait for it to clear. And then I ship you your item. Those are the early days of eBay. So yeah, I've been, I'm a dinosaur to this business. <laughs> It is amazing, amazing how much has changed in those 22 years. And I want to congratulate you, by the way. It is just a marvel to have a business that you continue to head after all these years. When I looked at that, I said, 1999, that's a whole nother century. Like, that's a whole different, that's the 20th century. And she's still around and going strong. It's amazing. And uh, so congratulations. 
And so I guess my question is, you've been around 22 years. You built the company to be able to last through trends, through innovation, and grow stronger as a result of those things. And then you hit a blasted pandemic. So my question for you isn't, how have you done it? How have you survived? Which, you know, of course, those are all relevant questions. I'm delighted to have you answer. My question is, what is it that you did over the first 21 years that allowed you to be in a position where when a pandemic came your way, you could survive and grow through it in spite of that? Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's interesting is um, when you're bootstrapped, you know, and every penny counts as you're growing the business because we're bootstrapped for 20 years and every dollar counted. And, and the other weird thing about our company is that we're profitable and always have been. Apparently that's a really freaky thing in when you're talking about e-commerce companies that are venture funded at this point that were actually profitable. But when you're running the business that way from the very beginning um, and when you're you're growing, literally I bought a bag and then I sold it and I took the money from that and then I bought two bags and then I sold those and I took the money from that and then I bought three bags and grew like really just tortoise in the hairstyle very slow over the years but um it I, I and and just fairly small in comparison to companies that start in with like tens of millions of dollars of venture funding and just blast the growth right off and revenue at all costs or whatever it's a different strategy we've had so through the years we've been constantly watching the you know the atmosphere in our space and trying to make moves that we've been able to actually kind of follow along with. And really, when you talk about being agile in technology, real agility is the ability to kind of pivot and make these little micro, we've been doing the same thing for our entire lives. We haven't expanded categories. We've added a few brands here and there, but we do ultra luxury accessory resale and that's all we've done. Um, But we've been able to kind of make different changes over the years in the face of different challenges. And we've been around for 22 years, which means we were here during the last recession and, you know, in the 2000s when things got crazy and everyone was like, oh, are people going to stop buying luxury? What does this mean? We were there then and we saw what happened and we tried to take the lessons we learned then and apply them during the pandemic. And I think it paid off. I mean, look, this is incredible. Like, first of all, re-commerce is, um, it hits all the right tone of, I guess, like the the current sentiment around sustainability. It's also been a model that's been refined over the last, like, let's say 10 or 15 years. Like, you know, the first time I came across a remodel, uh, re-commerce model, I think it was Bib and Tuck, I want to say, uh, Sarah and Sarah. And, um, you know, since we've, of course, had, you know, the founders, Tracy and Manisha of Poshmark on the show, we've had uh, Julia of The Real Real, and, um, you know, you have both of them being public, you have ThreadUp getting ready to go public. I mean, you've been doing this for quite some time, and, you know, you yourself have received uh, quite a bit of funding, right? You you closed a Series B last year of, and correct me if I'm wrong, around 38 or so million. Yeah, it ended up being a little over, over 42 and it was all said and yeah. done, but yeah. Got it. And, and and now you have all of this energy around re-commerce models. And, I, you know, I'm just wondering, like, to take a step back from all of this, like, what is your reflection? And, like, why is this happening now? Um, what's your – like, where are you in terms of what's your participation to this ecosystem? Yeah. The thing that I love is – and 
why what got me here in the first place is I'm a believer a hundred percent. It's in my blood. Like I've been buying, you know, resale since I was a baby, you know, basically because I've always wanted to buy things I can't afford, but I could afford it if it was used. So, and to this day, I'd say 95% of my clothes are, I buy from the, from the secondary market, from local consignment shops, from every competitor of ours. And not because I'm trying to test their shipping or how, you know, test their packaging, but because I love it. And I, I buy from thread up. I buy from the real, real, I buy from stock X. I buy from all of, and again, because I'm, I'm a believer in all of these categories. I, I, what I think we're seeing is that Again, this is something that our grandparents did, buying and selling, seeing the value in the products you have, and then selling them. And there's different ways we've done it in past generations, but now with technology, we're just adding really cool innovations, you know, and scale to something that's been done for hundreds of years. And so, um, you know, this is something that I see as when you look at the the TAM for, um, you know, our category alone in the ultra luxury accessory market. We're looking at a 50 to 60 billion dollar market there's room for all of us in there in a different kind of way from our different approach and so i buy all of my daughter daughter's stock um doc martens on the real real you can get a you know get them at half retail like it's a yeah. no-brainer to me and then i buy all my da other daughter's jeans on thread up and we shove all of our old clothes in their thread up ba bags and ship them off to to thread up and so we use all these just as part of our life. And I think that that's something that a lot more people are starting to, it's something I've always done and it hasn't always been so um, common in the ultra luxury sector. It actually in Japan where they're like the highest consumers of luxury goods in the world, resale in our category has been done for decades. Well, and in America, nobody just did it. Well, when I started selling on eBay, you had your mom and pop consignment shop, you had eBay, which at the time was a cesspool of counterfeits, and they've really gotten their act together. And actually, I buy from real eBay all the time. I mean, I've always bought from eBay, but it's much—it's a very safe environment to buy from today. It wasn't at the time. But you had Fashion File, your consignment shop, or eBay back in those early days. And now there's lots more options available. And to me, there's just, you know, room for a lot of us, and especially in all the different categories. Yeah, I mean, look, $51 billion is is... The, it's a it's a conservative estimate for you know the next two years to grow into that to that market opportunity um but do you have like if you were to look back and say okay if i'm putting this on let's say a venn diagram uh where where does fashion file fall in terms of the spectrum of what's available out there between the some of the names that you may have mentioned yeah and, and we have <laughs> we have a beautiful diagram that puts us exactly where and, and again, like what we're excited about is, is we've always known our, we know our, um, our customer and we try to really serve her as best we can. Um, and we found that that's really the secret to our ability to be, to maintain our profitability over, you know, for, like I said, for the first 20 years we're in business, people would say to us, how are you growing 50% a year, year over year? And how are you profitable when there's hundreds of millions of dollars being invested in this category. And and to us, we would say to ourselves, when you're good to our customer, when you're good to her, she's telling her friends and she's coming back and that's how we can grow organically. And let's face it, when all of the beautiful 
venture capital money has been infused into our category and there's so much awareness building to the category, we benefited that. We benefited from that for the past 15 years, even though we didn't participate in raising money, it raised our, you know, that rising tide raised our ship 100%. So we're actually grateful to that, um, you know, but, and so it's one of those things that we've just, we see um, our kind of like hyper-focus on our customer as being, you know, a differentiator. Um, we serve her the way that she wants to be served and we, and we allow her to shop the way that she likes to be, likes to shop. And so. And, and to be clear, I mean, it, you're a luxury reseller. Um, yes. So, yeah. so you, right. So I, th I think there is a clear distinction between, lug you know, just having, you know, the, uh, the approach in terms of your, your client profile. Um, so with that, I mean, look, the the real real has uh, gone through some public scrutiny on, um, you know, kind of fakes, uh, fake merchandise, you know, infiltrating their supply chain. Uh, mm -hmm. However, however, that may have happened. I have no idea. Um, but it's a, it's something that they continue to struggle with. And I can't imagine that this is not something that's heavy on your mind or maybe you've experienced something similar. Can you talk about yeah. how how the, you know, that that whole authentication side and just kind of the the client protection that, that, that stems around, you know, providing a quality luxury product. That's yeah. right. No, that's, and it's, it's obviously that's like prime, you know, first in our mind and always has been yeah. one thing for, for me, the reason why it's, it's easy for me to sleep at night. It's actually a fun challenge. Like, because we only accept 51 brands, you know, at, at, when you, you know, I think, I believe the real world accepts 51, you know, 5,500 brands, maybe more honestly, but when you sell everything in the house and the real real, again, I'm a huge fan. I'm a shopper. I actually am an investor in the real real. Like I, I just saw the open market, but I mean, like I, I love what they're doing, but you can buy an unbranded sofa on the real real. Our conference room table chairs from fashion file came from the real real. You can buy a rug. You can buy a pair of Nike shorts. And I'm not saying Stella McCartney, you know, collaboration Nike shorts. I'm talking about a $20 pair of shorts. And so it becomes an operational challenge when you say you get a box of things, I can ship them a box and in the box, it's got a Jonathan Adler ashtray and a Tiffany lamp and a piece of art and a Cartier love bracelet and a Chanel, you know, boy bag and an off-white belt. And how do you operationally get all of these items to the necessary experts because they all require, or some of them actually the, if you sell an unbranded couch, there's no authentication because it doesn't even have a brand. So you don't even need to authenticate that item. Or again, you can buy rugs or whatever. But at Fashion File, we accept 51 brands. And we've been working for 20 years on a, a, not only, you know, authentication, but fashion through Fashion File University, a training program. We actually had a call last week with one of the brands that we sell. And, and we said to them, we said, you know, we would love to send our team of authenticators to Stanford's Dior authentication course. Oh yeah, they don't have one. Oh, we would love to send our experts to Gucci's authentication training program. They're not offering that. So we offer, we created our own, you know, we created an actual program with, you know, a syllabus and it's got levels and different time of, you know, of uh, kind of an apprenticeship situation where you've got hours under your belt for different things before you're ever able to authenticate a product. And so it's something where I have, a, I have all confidence in our brand because again, with that hyper-focus and to us, we don't have those operational 
challenges that you do when you when you are real real is America's consignment shop. That's really what they are because they sell everything we sell, but then they sell everything in the house. And that's what makes it, in my opinion, a bigger challenge um, is just that when you when you authenticate everything, that is harder to do operationally and as a team member. You got four distribution centers. You got to have somebody who can, you know, authenticate your, you know, your art, your, you know, art products and as well as your Housework products and your fashion products, and it becomes a challenge. So uh, I'm curious. I mean, look, I, uh, that's a very powerful narrative that you're offering a limited supply uh, or a limited selection of luxury brands that we all love and know, and maybe we don't. And you know, th- there's a teaching opportunity there as well. But um, I don't see that though on your webpage. I don't. I don't see where that would be. And I'm wondering how do you lean into that. Um, that storytelling to say that, look, if you are apprehensive about purchasing luxury, because maybe you've had a poor experience or, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's definitely something we could make more obvious, but I think we, we try to do a really good job. If you look at our authentication um, page on our website or at any point we can in all of our social media messaging and our newsletters and, you know, even ads we put out like the most common, most used ad that people will see if you're on YouTube or whatever that comes from Fashion File is an authentication video where I'm actually talking in part about that. And it's been really helpful for us as we've talked to the brands um, because this is a challenge that like resellers have, you know, no matter what you resell, you have a challenge in this, in this department. If you sell sneakers, if you sell instruments or anything of value, there's counterfeiting around, if there's fake Tide pods and Duracell batteries, anything that's got value that you resell, there's going to be an authentication piece to that. And the truth is, is that one of the glaring issues that we're seeing more and more every day is that the brands themselves are also having to figure out their own authentication because as, as a reseller, one thing that we see is more and more of the problem where a criminal buys an authentic item from a brand or from a luxury retailer, and then also buys the corresponding counterfeit item that looks, that's decent quality counterfeit. Switches it and returns it. They take the, they take the fake Mm -hmm. and they put it back in the box, the original box with the tissue paper and the tags and all that. And they return that to the brand or they return that to the retailer. And then, you know, a year and a half later, after one of these, you know, retail clients who was sa- safely bought this purchase from the brand or retailer tries to sell that item to us. And we say, oh, sorry, that's a counterfeit. And they say, I bought this from the brand. How is that possible? And no joke, I got a call on a Saturday from a, from a legal representative of a retailer who said, you told our VIP that they're, the bag they bought from us is counterfeit. And I'm thinking, oh, shoot, you know, like, Ugh, what did we just do? And I look it up. And I look at the photos and I was like, oh, by the way, this isn't even a good fake. And come to find out it was part of this. Re- I'm like, this thing, my husband could eyeball this one. But, um, you know, it was one of those things where, and so it's a problem that the brands are all trying to figure out and they're doing different things um, to protect against that. Jewelry, jewel- our jewelry brands have had more pieces in place that protect against that for a long time. Because, for example, you know, Tiffany knew that it was a, it was a big Uh, potential loophole for a a scammer 
to buy a Tiffany ring and then take it home and then swap out the diamond, which is the most important part, and the most valuable piece, and return a Tiffany band with a counterfeit real diamond. It could be a carrot diamond, but it's not a Tiffany diamond. And that diamond, so now the the tip, the um, jewelry brands all have like laser inscripted, you know, invisible to the naked eye engravings on a single facet of a diamond um, and various other tools and tricks they're doing to kind of protect that behavior. But the brands are also, we're all coming together. I'm telling you right now, like I am a huge proponent of similar to what you've seen in the, in the automobile industry around the bin number. I call it a LIN number, and it's a joke, but like a luxury identification number. I mean, you, you're going to take an electronic to a pawn shop, they've got a registration number on that thing. If it's a little, you know, musical a sta- a speaker system or something, there's a registration number in that thing. But I could buy a Louis Vuitton purse, and on that purse, what do you have in there? You don't even have a, a serial number. You've got a date code. It'll tell you this item was made in this factory in France, in March of 2020, that's all the information you have. And so basically every single item that was made in that month has the same code. Um, and so it's, you know, when the brands come together, like the, like what happened in the automobile industry, when, when every car has a, an identification number and I want to buy one from a, you know, used car lot, you can run that VIN number and you can say, oh, wow, that was in an accident or this item was reported stolen. And there's all, or this is not an item that was ever created by Toyota in 2000, whatever. All that information is free and readily available. And I, I, I think that that might be something, I don't know to that extent, but there's a lot of brands caring, I know, and LVMH are investing in blockchain technology that potentially could be help. That could be really helpful, but to, to create this ledger and this provenance of a bag requires help from the secondary market. All you would yeah, have it does. is the, it would yeah. just have the first sale if without our participation. And we're the first one to raise our hands and say, we're, we're excited to participate. Let's do this. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue with the blockchain is exactly the amount of data that you need in there to authenticate that, that, that is in fact the, the item or it's another exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. St- really interesting stuff. Now I want to take a, a step back if you don't mind. And like, look, yeah. you've been in this for a while and I'm wondering like for you, what was the tipping point? Right. Like where when did it all start coming together easily? And when were you able to like really, really grow and drive this company? Like what happened? What, what were you doing? What what was the stage? Yeah, I mean, it's so we've kind of which is an odd thing. Um, we've kind of grown at a 50 percent growth clip year over year with um, and, and have been profitable for the past, like, you know, since about 2008 yeah. when we started tracking it. So we've steadily kind of had the same growth trajectory. We've we've never yet had any hockey stick, you know? It's just that as we get yeah. bigger, and if you grow 50% or, it looks you know, like even a little more, it starts to get really exciting. The numbers get bigger over time, but we actually never have. And and a lot of people have suspected that things would happen when, you know, in, 2000, in um, ni- uh, 2019, um, like we've been bootstrapped for 20 years, and we took our first... We'd gone out in a traditional fundraising effort. We just finally decided for, we'd had our first conversation, you know, in 2007 with an, a, 
an angel, and an angel investor wanted to invest in our company and had conversations throughout the years. And we're like, we're profitable and we're growing. Like, why would we do that? Like, what would we do with the money? We really like, we're kind of like, um, and so we didn't do that for 20 years. We didn't, but finally we realized we've got some really cool technology we're building. That's super exciting when you think about and necessary to grow, to really scale the company, the way we're, the direction we're going, we need to figure this out. And so that's expensive to do that technology. At the time we had, my business partner was my, is my brother-in-law. And, um, you know, we had started, we were like, we didn't have a, a C-suite. We had no CTO. Yeah. We had no COO. We had no, we had no, well, every single it... Instagram post was me. Everyone yeah. prior to that name Mark deal was me. And I'm no social media, you know, person. Well, so, let me let me let me ask you this: 2019, um, what was your revenues? What did the team look like? So, I mean, obviously, it was quite hands-on. So, I could imagine it was much smaller than what it is today. But um, what 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 did the company look like? Yeah, I mean, we we're still, you know, did a hundred million in revenue in GMV. So it's like, you know, we're a decent Damn. size. It's not like yeah, hundred million in revenue before even touching any sort of or even thinking through um uh, a formalized fundraising campaign crazy no, we, were, we, were thinking, sir. we were thinking right 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 but you didn't you didn't right but that was your first yeah. attempt at it right that was your first journey yeah. down doing it we had wow. never we had never uh, and honestly um the when we first did that deal we went the traditional route we talked to a bunch of private equity folks we had some term sheets from some people that we were super excited about like we were pumped on but at the last minute neiman marcus stepped in and we're like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> like, honestly, had not even, I hadn't even thought that that was a potential possibility. Um, so we ended up doing that deal with Neiman Marcus and they were our first investor. And that's been like a really, it's now like that was April of 2019. And people have said, oh, the honeymoon's going to be over. You get investors and it's going to be a nightmare, you know, and they are, they are to this day, just like a, a dream, like pinch me that that's still our partner, like have been so great. And then, but when we did that deal, we, it was a smaller deal than we went out to raise. It's a minority deal, a minority investment from Neiman Marcus. So we knew we were going to have to raise more money from that get go. And the exciting thing is, is one of those um, private equity groups that we had, we were had, you know, were finalized on the, in that earlier round before we went Neiman was the one we ended up going, closing out New Spring. So, you know, we were super excited to be able, because we didn't, we loved, actually loved were, New Spring and, um, but you can't say no to the Neiman Marcus deal. It's yeah, too good. Were, were you, were you involved with their lab or the innovation lab there? Or was this a completely cold, like relationship that showed up one day? This was cold. We'd never had a convo with them wow. in our lives. Yeah. Wow. And their team, and their team, honestly, you think about these luxury department stores and in your mind, you kind of think, you know, they're really trying to figure it out. Obviously it's hard for department stores right now, but I'll tell you right now, they're, you know, CEO, so forward thinking, honestly. And how brave is that to associate with a reseller? Yeah. They were the first one. I don't think they get enough credit, honestly, for just sticking their necks out and saying, and, and the reason the why is exactly what you said. It's the sustainability aspect, number one. But number two, the fact that they're like, they did a, a study of their customer and they found that their customer is using a secondary market. They're just using mom and pop consignment shops around because there's only so much room in the closet. And if you're a high net worth individual who's buying a lot of stuff from Neiman, there's only so much room on your 
beautiful shelves to fit all the product. And so they are getting rid of it, just not in a really elegant way. And so he's picturing in his mind what is actually happens today, which is you walk into the Fashion Island Neiman Marcus store and you buy, you know, the backpack, the Louis Vuitton backpack that Mark gave you that you're like, this isn't really my thing, you know, and you sat in your closet and, you know, finally you're like, I'm just going to get something I want. You go to Neiman Marcus, you put that on the counter, you go shop shoes or go to the cafe or something if it's not COVID. And then you get an alert on your phone, you come back and you've got a $2,000 check waiting for you. Or if you will put that money on a Neiman Marcus gift card, you get 10% more. And now Neiman Marcus is thinking, you now have $2,200 Neiman Marcus gift card burning a hole in your pocket in the store. And you know how it is if you've got a free gift card in the store, it's like free money. Those shoes you just saw, they're free now. Go buy them, you know, like, or, or anything. And so really that was the vision he saw. When you talk about the luxury life cycle, this is a part of that luxury life cycle. And so now we are in five Neiman Marcus stores right now, and we're in the process right now of opening more. You'll hear soon. I wish I could tell you, give me more details. But, um, you know, and it's really, that is the only place in the world that this is happening that I know of where you can walk in with last year's bag and literally buy this year's bag with the money that you got from last year's bag in the same shopping trip. I mean, it's really yeah, revolutionary. So, so cool. that mean, that means you're you're dropping it off and then essentially Fashion File is putting it on or they're authenticating. They give it the value and then they'll go ahead or Neiman Marcus will guarantee the value up front while Fashion File in the back puts it up on the website and, and gets it sold. Well, because the way the thing that's different about us is we always pay on the spot, so yeah, we're not. Got it. We don't. Got you it. don't wait for it to gotcha. sell. So that's a that's a, differenti a differentiating point from Fashion File is that that we pay up front, and so it makes that very elegant and easy. How how I'm sort of interested, Sarah. Uh, I see all the value of this on so many different dimensions, but how do you think that this can affect as this becomes more and more adopted across across retailers um how do you think that could affect the return ratio uh i'm going to use it just as an example like i'm not someone who typically returns things like i very rarely exchange a christmas gift for example sure. i'm just one of those people that doesn't do it some people do it um so so my question is but if i knew that I had the ability to go return this and have such an active, positive financial reward for doing that. And it was so easy for me to do. It might change my decision making. So my question is, is do you think that this can aggravate returning uh, returns or do you think that this can make it so that the the fact that there are returns will uh, uh, allow people to reinvest that money back into that store rather than just taking the money and going elsewhere. Yeah, I mean to me what we've seen is it actually potentially would reduce retail concern returns in the fact that, you know, um you bought that Louis Vuitton backpack and you thought about returning it but you're like I could I can wear it for a couple months and probably just still sell the fashion file for, you know, pretty close to what I got for it anyway. So why not just hold on to it? You know, and so, and quite frankly, we um, were the beneficiaries of <laughs> thank you retailers for whoever has harsh, like, um, return windows, because once you miss that window, we're your only option. We are people's, 
if you look on our product for anything that's new with tags, those things, you know, we have things that are new in box that have never been used, they have stickers on all that. And, you know, a good portion of the time when we have gone into it, find information, we're like, why did you sell us this? And they're like, yeah, I freaking meant to return. I just never got around to it. And I, I'm like you, I don't return. And honestly, I would, my sister, she is a professional returner. I just can never get around to it. I'm just like, I should return that. And I just can't seem to do it. But she's very good at it. So we are the recipient of people who are like, I bought that like two years ago. I missed the return window. It's been sitting there. And I finally just got rid of it. So, yeah. Have you taken a look at StoryDot yet? Every brand and every product has a story to tell. And you can't successfully sell that brand or product without telling the story. StoryDot delivers your story wherever you want it to be heard. You can meet your customers at each point in their journey, connecting the dots between your business and the consumer to enhance engagement, experience, and conversion. I encourage you to take a look at StoryDot at StoryDot.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-D-O-T.com. Like this model makes so it's obviously works. I mean, you have um, Foot Locker that owns Goat. Um, you have a stadium goods uh, acquisition. I mean, StockX uh, operates completely different than um, traditional e-commerce, given that it's like a marketplace, right? Um, I I I think the value for the retailer is already like certified at this point, and they are. You're right. They're forward thinking, and they have to think through like how to figure it out. What what I'm what I'm kind of curious about is like the the brand relationships because initially, just like even in e-commerce, um, re-commerce really posed um, in their minds a huge, huge, um, I guess, detriment to the brand value, right? Initially, and you know now you're seeing even like let's say Poshmark is working with brands to offer wholesale to the to their customers. So you you have that now convergence between resale and now um wholesale activation between these power users and sellers. So how how is the the brand conversation played out in your from your seat? Yeah, I mean that's those are such interesting conversations. I mean and points and ones that as we've talked to the brands and those conversations have changed in the last 10 years like unbelievable yeah absolutely the brands are really they're finally just saying i will tell you right now i'm like you can write this down in you know five years every brand will be participating in some way in the secondary market there's no shoot there's no car company out there who's too good to handle their own you know resale of their cars but um you know at what point you know to me it's just companies kind of figuring out what looks best for their optics how much they want to do on their own. Again, like who's going to build it? Who's going to buy it? Kind of that, that more of that conversation. I think that's happening. But one thing that we know for sure at Fashion File, at least in the ultra luxury category, I can't speak to all of fashion resale, but in our category, which is our average selling price is, you know, for handbags is like 13, 1400 bucks. So our AOV is much higher than most of the other e-commerce brands out there. Um, but in our category, our sellers, very few of our sellers are also buyers. 
And we're actually fine with that. A, a lot of e-commerce company, companies want to turn all of their sellers into buyers and their buyers into sellers. And we're, we're fine with some of that happening, but the truth is we need a good section of our, a good most of our sellers to continue to buy from Neiman and to buy from Louis Vuitton and Chanel and Gucci and Bottega right from the brand. Um, because the way you get the really interesting, amazing mix of product we have on our site is the fact that we buy from so many people who are just shopping. Um, and, and what we found, and that's really cool now, because we always had this anecdote that, that um, at Fashion File, as we make it really easy to get, you know, to, to, to pay you for these investments you've made in ultra luxury accessories, as we make it really easy for you to liquidate those investments, you just buy more, buy more new. I mean, you know, your ability, if you buy a new Lamborghini and we make it really easy for you to sell a used Lamborghini, you're not going to go buy another used car. You're going to buy a new, bigger, better car. And yeah, that's what we see in our category. Sarah, you're, you're talking to someone who grew up in New York, has a couple of trust fund baby friends and like, you know, the way that they work, the ones that are really into fashion. I mean, the reality is, is that they don't want anything last season at all. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're buying their shit retail all the time. And, and to your point, they're, 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 they're putting it in a box and oftentimes just giving it to friends, like literally, or they could just now swap it out and for the fun of it, participate exactly. that they're, they're in like, you know, more of a sustainable Kind of Something that's world. really interesting at Fashion Files, because we've always, we've seen this in the 20 plus years we've been doing this. We know that's true. We know that our sellers and our cross and our buyers cross over very little and that our sellers don't buy very, even, you know, very much at all. Um, but we didn't have any data to support it. And the thing that's interesting now, for the past, like, since like 2008 or something, I can't remember, we would tell you. If we buy that Louis Vuitton backpack from you, we'll give you 5% more. And then like 10 years ago, we changed that to 10%. Because we're like, why, why wouldn't people, if we're paying you for this backpack, get another backpack you can buy from us. And no matter what we've done, that number of people who want fashion file credit, who are selling to us, that number is like the 3 to 4%. It just doesn't, that's not that many of our sellers want to buy used. But when we offer Neiman Marcus credit now, we can yeah, that's see that that time. number is exponentially more. And we now know because of our relationship with Neiman Marcus, because they're an investor, that these people are taking that Neiman Marcus credit. And they're just buying a new bag from it. They're buying a new bracelet. They're buying a new watch. And so it's that's the cycle. And so when we talk about the luxury life cycle. And in, like I said, in other brands, you might hear, you know, again, like someone that buyer turning to seller to buyer, we have the primary market as a significant part of our flywheel that we want to maintain because it's just something that there's a reason why. And, and this is, this is obviously a debatable thing that that fashion is trying to come to grips with, but the seasonality, the seasonal releases of luxury brands and especially in our category, as you know, there's people who buy every season. What do you do with last season stuff? So we're here to say, for the ultra, you know, the, the our type of customer, um, what is the what is the ultimate luxury? It's time. You've got no time to do this on your own. I mean, how many right now devices do you have in, in drawers that you're like, I gotta sell this one day. There's too much value. I've got to get rid of it somehow. I've got or things in your closet. You thought I need to do this. 
we just try to make that as easy as possible so you just don't just box them and you don't have to think about it we write your check right there you don't worry about it anymore you really close the loop on your own with that partnership with neiman because yeah to your point nobody wants to do the work right and then you have a whole rise in the service economy that's there just existing to sell other people's shit on re-commerce right. sites so oh, it, yeah. it's really incredible now one thing that i'm curious about is that look the the buy side attractiveness to fashion file is is clear obvious and i could see a lot of people just like you know the referral kind of you know the word of mouth kind of spreads but i think if i were to guess you you're probably your challenge from a marketing perspective is to get the sellers on board especially if they're not buyers right so it's like how do you get that brand awareness out now of course you could lean back on the whole uh neiman marcus partnership to kind of help uh, drive, you know, the from the associate level, which is incredible. But let's say before that, like, how how have you traditionally, and how do you continue to uh, attract and focus and and target that the seller? Yeah, it's interesting because the the truth is, is if you only focus on the seller, if your ads are like mm -hmm. we buy bags, you know, basically, and obviously we try to make it a more elegant, elevated statement than yeah. that. But if we say that you know that we also buy. And so we found that the truth is people looking for what we sell, um, I, I, my, the digital team hates it when I say it's not that hard to sell a Chanel bag for less than retail because they're like, they're working every day to make that better, you know, a better experience and, and you know, more, a better, <laughs> um, you sell more. But to buy a Louis Vuitton backpack for less than retail, I mean, it's just, there are people looking for that actively, you know? Correct. I, you know, if you're, if you're developing your own brand, if we were trying to sell fashion file merch, that's a different yeah. ball game. And, and that's why brands... I say that the buy side, like your buyers of, of products through, like, let's say fashionfile.com, that's yeah. the easier, and I don't want to say easy sell, but that's yeah. the easier sell than finding the sellers to put product on the actual Right. Or, or to and, get and it so to there's, you. There's two things I will say about that. The first one being that, again, if we focus most of our marketing on getting new sellers, that marketing speaks to the buyer as well. And so we feel like Got we're it. converting just as well to the it, buyer. We say, we buy Birkins. People shopping for Birkins are going to see that and go, who is this that's buying all the Birkins? And so that's kind of worked. The second thing that we've always tried to do, and I feel like this is the secret sauce and I'm fine revealing it to everyone. <laughs> but like... If we are buying, you know, if we've got, if we're buying a, a Chanel bag, last season's Chanel bag from at a wonderful, you know, this seller who, who sells last year's Chanel bag, by the way, the person who does that, she's got Gucci slides on her shoes. She's wearing an Hermes H belt. She's got a stack of Cartier bracelets on her wrists and Tiffany, you know, studs in her ears. That's our person. And she's doing that because her friends are too. So if we can be really good to her and by good, I mean, pay her as much as we can, that as much as makes sense, pay her super fast. If we can do those two things. And, and by the way, you don't need a bunch of fancy marketing teams or awareness building campaigns or anything. Cause the best marketing campaign is the woman with the amazing closet who's sending us stuff and telling her friends. Yeah. And, so and um, that's yeah, the amazing network. Yeah. That's been, been our the... tactic since day one. Yeah, it's been the amazing network effect, I guess, right? So, how yeah. how do you how do you keep? Uh, maybe I'm missing something here, uh, Sarah. How do you keep track of? Okay, so let's say uh, last year's bag is still we're right on the cusp of when it might still be offered in some stores. 
somebody finds it on incredible markdown they buy it and then they're able to resell it uh and get an exchange for cash that may actually hypothetically in my head exceed even the price they paid for it through that markdown how 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 do either you avoid the system being gamed in that way or is is am i missing something and that's actually good for the retailer all around i think it's all good for the retailer i mean the retailer by the way if 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 you had a popular iconic style like any of chanel's iconic pieces any pick any item where you can picture when i say louis vuitton and you picture a shape in your head or i say chanel and you picture a style all those iconic shapes and styles next season those bags do not sell at a steep discount in fact in decent condition Oddly, a Chanel last year's Chanel last season's Chanel flap will sell for higher than retail today, even if it's been carried. Um, because number one, some of the brands we carry don't sell on online at all. I mean, that's just the, the in our category, some of our brands do not sell any handbags, jewelry, any of our accessories online at all. And so, if you live in Biloxi, Mississippi, you're driving to Dallas or Austin you know, or no, no, you're to Atlanta, you're driving three states to get to a Chanel store. Um, and so, you know, that is, that means that if you, if you're a, a person of means who wants to buy a new bag and can't go, can't get to Atlanta to do it and you don't buy online and you want to buy it from fashion file and it costs a couple hundred bucks over retail, but it's in basically new condition, then you're just going to do that. Um, and so, it really, what we do, um, again, we've been doing this for so long. We have so much data and the pricing algorithm we're using to, to give you the accurate price of the bag is taking in consideration, you know, velocity of sales of this particular style. Super oddly, velocity of sales of the color. There's certain Chanel bags in, the, in certain colors. Brown 21 right now is on fire. It's like a caramel color brown. And and it, our system can hardly keep up with the pricing on it. It's so confusing because it sells so much higher than retail because it's super limited and a really, really hot color today that hasn't been hot forever and will not be hot in a, at a certain period. And so our, our system need, needs to not only watch velocity of sales as they're speeding up, but as they're slowing down. We can't offer you over retail for a used bag that all is on its downward trend. And by the time we get out on the site, it's now lame and last year's color. So last year, as they say, Um, but you know, and so it's taking in consideration velocity of sales, retail price, our own historical sales, how many items we have on the site, how many items in the market. And this is technology that's, you know, an algorithm we've developed that's doing this, that and every single one of the items, if you submit your backpack to us, it's not a computer that just goes $2,000. What it is, is the computer will say to our team, this bag, in, if you say this is in excellent condition, you should probably give $2,000. You know, one of our procurement specialists sees it and goes, he called it good, but there's a massive, like, it's in really good shape structurally and it's very clean, but there's a big Sharpie mark on the inside of that lining that people are not going to like. And while it's otherwise, in, in, you know, and maybe would reduce the price or whatever based on that. And so we're using tools that kind of give you give our team an automated price that then they tweak because old models, the way that our grandparents did consignment and resale was a flat percentage. 
And what that means is they're going to treat the Chanel Brown 21, you know, cocoa handle the same as number one, a black cocoa Chanel handle, or as the same as a Fendi spy bag from 2011. And so for at Fashionville, we don't do that. We say this bag is going to, it's going to sit on our website for three hours. You know, it, we're going to turn it so quickly. We're not going to, we're not taking 70, you know, 30% and giving you 70. We're going to give you 90%. And we're, by the way, going to price it over retail. Um, and so we're going to, we're going to, you know, kick that back to you. And by the way, if we're wrong, if Brown 21 starts to take a, take a slowdown and becomes less popular by the time we get on the site, that doesn't come out of your pocket. You already got paid for it. And so we treat the seller with the respect of giving the proper payment. If you submit to us also, a old Prada nylon backpack that you bought in 2009, you carried that around the world. It was amazing, but it's got worn through corners and the piping is showing and, you know, whatever. The handle's kind of... And and at that one, we might only give you 50% of what we think it's going to sell for or less. And you know what? You can't believe we gave you anything. You're stoked to get it out the door. But we're not going to give you the same percentage for items that are actually... They need to be treated different. And that makes sense not only in um, price ranges but also in the actual product because one of the cheapest items we sell is a Louis Vuitton key ring. Key, it's a little key holder pouch. It's called, just called the monogram key pouch, I think, from Louis Vuitton. Louis, they, on purpose, I swear, do not keep that thing in supply. It's not discontinued. It's just it's impossible to get. It's always sold out on the website. They only have randomly in stores. And so in the resale market, those things sell for like twice retail and it's just a standard a non-discontinued nothing you know 200 i think it's 200 dollars retail and i think we sell it for like 400 something like that if it's in worse shape we might sell for 350 but point is we're still gonna we'll give you 90 percent for that little tiny thing it's not just the fact that the dollar amount is high it's actually we're, we're looking at per item not you know by dollar amount only because again the same thing on a everybody talks about the hermes birkin being like the the crazy best investment bag. But the truth is, is that handbags are not like sneakers where um, sneakers you take out of the box and, or you, if you take them out of the box and you wear them, they've lost like a, a lot of their value. Like a lot of times, if you want that, those shoes to sell for five grand or these crazy amounts of money that some of these Nike, um, you know, some of these dunks my son's obsessed with looking at the screen on and can't afford to ever buy. Um, it's, they've got to be new in box, but in the handbag world, most of what we sell is not that. And Birkins are kind of like sneakers. If you take a Birkin, keep it in the box and never take the plastic off or anything and put it on the shelf, it will kind of go like sneakers and it'll sell for higher than retail right when you bought it and all that. But if you carry that Birkin, carry that Birkin for a couple of, couple months, the value goes down significantly. And by the way, we have a ton of Birkins on our website right now that are 50% off retail because you wore them. Because you carried it. And so, um, you know, it's just different. It, it's amazing. So a few things that I'm just observing about the this whole space is one on re-commerce um, generally, of course, it really resonates with younger generations. But you're not playing oh, yeah. in those younger generations. So as those, gen, you know, Gen Z grows up into the the, the luxury category of, of buyer. So even, although they have great potential uh, purchasing potential right now, you know, they're still working on things like Klarna and, you know, and, 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 and 
let's say cost conscious when they're consumers but as they as they grow into your category of client holy shit and then the second is is really what i've been most surprised about is folks that would have normally never be caught dead purchasing something secondhand are now bragging about the deals that they find on secondhand marketplaces. And that to me has been the biggest shift and most telling shift of where society and culture is going. Yeah. I mean, to the, to the two points, the first, the thing that's crazy is when I was growing up, no, my son is 17 years old. He is into skateboarding. He, you know, is into, he plays basketball. He's, you know, just a normal kid. He gets decent grades. He would love an Hermes H-Belt. How does he know that? Because his basketball stars all wear Hermes H-Belts and they've got sweet bags. And they've got cool dunks on their feet. And my son is obsessed with watching all this stuff. And I'm like, get a J-O-B and you can buy your own, you know, Hermes H-Belt, but obviously, Anyway, we'll talk about his, that lifestyle choice later. But I'm like, at my, when I was growing up, no 17-year-old kid who wasn't from, like, none of his friends. It, it, I don't, I don't, my normal friends in my real life are not living like that. They're not all drippy with all the stuff. My normal friends in our community, you know, their luxury bags are really, like, Coach and, and Tory Burch and all that. Those kind of more brand, accessible brands. Those are the people we mix with. But the teenagers... With even with TikTok and you know on social media, obviously on Instagram or whatever, they see these stars and all of these aspirational items. And like you're saying, it's I actually think while our customer is not that age, our customer is skewing younger and younger all the time. Because back when I started the business, I used to say that Coach was the you know basically you know your entry level. It was your, you know, what got you kind of started in this world. I called, I used to call coach like the gateway drug for luxury. You start out in coach and you work yourself up, you know, but now what is the new gateway drug? It's not coach. It's a pre-owned Louis Vuitton fill in the blank, a vintage. You can buy a vintage Louis Vuitton or any brand. You pick any brand. You can buy from us vintage for 500 bucks or less. So um, that's the new gateway drug. And once that's the new gateway price point, then it's, it brings that, like that's, that age way down um, on, the, on the buying side. You know, the selling side still skews way older in our category. And so, um, you know, but we're seeing that, that appetite for that, number one, for that reason. And the second reason is the, the sustainability aspect. There's a point where it's kind of embarrassing and it's like, why would you buy this big box, like luxury corporate brand? And why not buy this something that's from more of a, you know, a shop local, a more sustainable, you know, option. And now it's like, this is the sustainable option. I mean, I tell people, what's the most sustainable bag you could buy? What Chanel bag ever ends up in the landfill? Very few. I mean, buying a new Chanel bag from Chanel may be one of the most sustainable bags you can buy. Because that bag will will not make it to a landfill. You break your chain on a you know you break your chain on a, a bag you bought from Target and you're you're throwing it away, or you know but you break your chain on your Chanel bag you're gonna take that down to the to Chanel or the newest shoe, closest shoe repair place you get that thing fixed it's worth it, um, and so people more important more people are saying 
if you want a bargain, that's an, a bargain. But also, if you care about the sustainability, you know, uh, aspect, it's really, Just in my opinion, most, yeah. Yeah. Buy quality stuff and wear it and then downcycle it, right? Or upcycle yeah. it. Yeah. Even buying less. Don't yeah. jam your don't jam your closet with every latest trend bag. Buy a few nice yeah. bags. Yeah, uh, look, I, it's it's really incredible to see where um, re-commerce has gone over the last ten years, um, and where it continues to go. Because I mean, you know, it's clear as day. My comments, I'm very bullish on the overall segment, um, very much so. Uh, what's next for you? What are you most excited about for 2021? I know you mentioned some technology builds are in the pipeline, but like, what what is it that is occupying your mind in terms of a business issue that you're looking to solve? I'm just excited. I mean, I'm excited about obviously just the excitement that I see out in the world. Um, I, I'm excited about conversations we're having with brands now, like I said before, that we've never had before. We're in NDAs right now with four brands that are our brands where, um, you know, who are, again, are trying to figure out, is there a way that we could help them to participate in some way? And it might look different for different brands, how they participate, but I'm excited to be supportive of brands as they kind of enter the space. Um, and I think that that Fashion File and, and companies like ours will be really important in helping them to do that because it's complicated and it's not something that, um, I think when brands dig in, they find that it's actually really a challenge. It's not, you would think that the best person to kind of own authentication for a brand might be the brand. But what we found is that, you know, the brands have a couple key people who know a lot about the items. And then they've got a, thousands of other people who've been there for a few years who know very little about the product. And so we found that we can be super helpful. And, um, you know, I think that's what's exciting for me is just, expanding, making ourselves more available to more people, um, making ourselves more accessible to more people, because I feel like it's a really important service. I do think that in a time, if we're coming up to any type of recessionary period at all, which again, I hope that doesn't happen, but what we saw in 2006 you know, to 2009 is when people, when times are good, people are buying a bunch of stuff. And when times get tight, they've got a lot of money in that closet that can actually pay the bills. I mean, I remember a time back in like 2009 when my, when Ben drove out to Palm desert and wrote a $150,000 check to a woman who sold a bunch of stuff to us so she could make payroll for her real estate company because real estate was struggling. And so I'm excited about just being in more places, um, being more available and our, we'll always be primarily, you know, um, direct from, consumer on the supply side online where you ship directly to us. But um, one interesting conversation I had with um, one of our, like our first like head of UX who came on our board. And I talked about how important I thought it was that our website and our app and everything was accessible to especially older users. I think they're getting, they don't get thought of when you talk about accessibility that are the contrasts, you know, um, right. And are, are the text sizes right for an older user? Because our sellers do skew older. And he said to me, which was revolutionary. He's like, if you really care about user experience, you have to recognize that some of your users are never going to download your app. They're never going to stand in the closet and take photos. And especially when you think of a high net worth individual who's an older person, like 
is she really going to stand in her closet, download her app, and take pictures of stuff and upload it? Or was she more likely to drop it off at the fat? We have a you know fashion file store in Madison, and she can just drop off eight things and get her check. You know, and so I like. Um, we opened our first. We call these selling studios, and we had we you know had three before Neiman Marcus. And now again, we've opened these five in Neiman Marcus stores. We're opening more of our own and in Neiman Marcus. But we opened our first selling studio, which is where you sell to us in Beverly Hills in 2006. And then we opened in San Francisco in 2009. And then in um, Carlsbad, North County, San Diego in 2012. And then Madison Avenue, New York City. Slowly been opening these studios. And now we're opening in Neiman Marcus. But I always say we've been omnichannel before there was a word for omnichannel, but on the selling side, meaning we recognize, we hope people will, and still 80 plus percent of the folks who use our services just upload photos and, we, and mail us the item. But there's this good number of people out there who don't want to do that. And we want to be in a place that's convenient for you to get paid quickly and, you know, and so to kind of ramp that up. It's funny. It's like the opposite of curbside pickup. It's like curbside drop-off now. It's going to have to be the next iteration. <laughs> we, we did, and with COVID, we actually yeah. totally did that. We call it I a know. quota drop-off. So, I knew yeah. it. Yep, I knew it. Um, too good. Real, really, really exciting stuff. Wow, you, you've certainly, uh, you, you just keep reinventing and reimagining and, and, and uh, just rethinking. It's, yeah. it's just a forward movement always. I think it's, I think when you're just really hyper, like I've been obsessed with this for 20 something years. <laughs> so if well, you're just obsessed it. with something for. It, it, it's, it's almost like it's given you energy instead yeah. of, you know, you've had to, had to, uh, to uh, uh, find new energy somehow. It's, it's, it's uh, true. Success has, has, uh, has given you a shot in the arm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, anyway, so, all right. So this is a great point for us to uh, pause, speaking of energy, and uh, take that energy and put it into. A uh, quick lightning round of off the grid questions where we get to know uh, Sarah as a person. Uh, I Whoa. feel like we got a glimpse into it, but uh, we're going to go <laughs> the rest of the way right after us. Culture starts at the top. And great customer experience, the only competitive strategy in today's world, is fueled by great leadership. We hear and read this every day, but many brands don't drive customer-first strategy. For those at the top who want to make that leap but don't know how, we'll learn from leaders who share what you must do to become customer-centric. I am Liliana Petrova, and this is The One Thing. The One Thing, Customer Experience from the Top, is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever the best podcasts are found. And now, it's time for Questions Off the Grid, with Fashion Is Your Business. All right, uh, Sarah, uh, let's... Do a round of off-the-grid questions where we go a little off-the-grid, get a little more personal with our questions. We figure out the order of the questions, as always, with a spin of our Wheel of Grid Destiny. And wherever it lands, 
who knows where it lands. Ron Roche goes, that is who asked the question. So I am going to just give that wheel a big old turn, and it's going round and round. And you can hear it. It's going round. <laughs> going round, and it has landed at Pubbin. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> Pubbin's like, woohoo! I win. I was totally well, ready for the question. You know, a lot of the the stuff that you're selling is like heirloom products. They're collectible to a certain degree, and they also are kind of like a badge of honor. So people, you know, that are purchasers of ultra luxury, the you know, it's a symbol, right? Um, kind of like their bat sign a little bit in their brand. So I'm wondering, like, even if you could look back to like childhood, like, what what did you identify with? What, like, you know, what did you keep around? What did you collect? What did you display as something that you were um very prideful of and it doesn't even have to be tangible it could be like works of art or well sorry that is tangible but it could be something like a work of art or poems or whatever it might be but what was kind of your kind of a thing that you like to showcase yeah that was yours i i will say i i guess i'm kind of sentimental because i i would think it's only like things with real meaning that um that aren't a particular maybe not something that's known to you know are recognizable to other people about having any value but to me it is in fact i have like a pot that my mom made into in 1969 and it actually has a symbol on it that if you look at fashion file symbol it's the symbol we took for our brand um it's kind of that not symbol and it's a symbol my mom made that pot in 1969 it has her you know her old name on it and it's meant a lot to me and so those things hold value to me but the truth is is and this is an interesting kind of bring back to what we do but like people don't think of things anymore necessarily as heirloom pieces like we did a few generations ago. We think of them more like investment pieces. And I've always been more that way that things don't really have a lot of, I don't get a lot of sentimentality around things. I'm fine with selling it and getting something else. And back in, you know, back probably in my grandma's age, she'd give my mom, except for my, my family had no money, but she would have given her mom a Chanel bag and then it would have been an heirloom piece, but now it's not. And today's generation is not going to, my daughters don't want my bags. They'll sell them and buy with, they'll buy a Gucci fanny pack or something with the Chanel bag I give them. And so I think th- to me, it's like more like things from like a handwritten letter, like I said, that pot my mom made. Those are things that I hold on to that I hold value in that I, and I still have. So you have the box of high school love notes or no? Yeah, I do. I actually do. I have, <laughs> I have a box of sentimental pieces of a couple, you know. Nice. I like it. Another spin of the wheel, and it lands on me. Okay. Uh, all right, Sarah. I would love to know. Um, when is the last time you remember? crying tears of joy oh tears of joy um i'm gonna say my daughter was in chile in santiago during covid Mm. and we got her home oh wow so that was i'm gonna say that was tears of joy i was very relieved and at the time it was like you know it was early march and so things were getting crazy and it was hard to even get her home at all. And so, um, I didn't know. And at the time it was kind of Ebola. We didn't, I mean, we really, you were seeing what was happening in Italy with 
these mass graves and she's in Chile and I'm just like, what does this mean? So I, I had so many know. tears of joy. I bet because you didn't know if you're going to see her for weeks or months I just or didn't years know what, or what or I, you know. I she'd been what. down there for nine months, so she'd been down wow. there for a while. So I was I and and so I hadn't seen her for a long time, and then I just didn't know with the climate. We didn't know so much about COVID, and they mm. weren't you know flights were spotty and all that. So it was very it was a huge. I was I can't even tell you the the joy and the tears and the. <gasps> Oh, it's so exciting. Yeah. Oh, uh, what a great what a great human answer. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. Uh all right, speaking of sharing, how can people connect obviously with your company? Yeah. But also how can people connect with you directly if you want to invite them? Sure. So yeah, um with the company, you can find us at fashionfile.com. Our we love people and or you know, have high engagement. I'd love to talk to people and communicate on our Instagram channel as well. We're on TikTok, because why not? Um, mm-hmm. I'm on Clubhouse. You can find me at Fashion File on Clubhouse right now. And nice. um, at Just Sarah Davis on Twitter. So at Just Sarah Davis on Twitter. So. Just Sarah Davis. Just That's it. Just Sarah that's it. Davis. Just Sarah Davis. <laughs> that's it. Just Sarah All right. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's any just about Just Sarah Davis at all. all right, but right. Uh, fair enough. So, well, thank you so much for joining us and yeah. fill, filling us in on you and on Fashion File and on the journey. And also you know, what's possible, which is, I think is a pretty wide berth. It's such a uh, giant, uh, excuse the term, but white space out there. That's just, uh, just in- incredibly wide and, and it still is. such a young frontier really. So, yeah, um, no, I, I, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. I love talking about it because I'm so bullish kind of like you both are on what's available and possible. And I love supporting everyone out there again because i think it's very exciting i think it's better for the planet and it's better for us it's more fun yep. so <laughs> all right well that's super thanks again for joining us we really no enjoyed it uh that's it for this episode of fashion is your business everybody thank you so much for taking the time to listen we'll see you next time until then for pub and ball shake it easy everyone <laughs> i'm mark rako have a great day everybody bye-bye this has been fashion is your business Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at fashionisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. This is Mouth Media Network. Audio for business.